Chapters 51 and 52 of Omu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Omu, a narrative of adventures in the South Seas by Herman Melville. Chapter 51. Wilson gives us the cut. Departure for Imeo. About three weeks after the Julia's sailing, our condition began to be a little precarious. We were without any regular supply of food. The arrival of ships was growing less frequent, and, what was worse yet, all the natives but good old Captain Bob began to tire of us. Nor was this to be wondered at. We were obliged to live upon their benevolence when they had little enough for themselves. Besides, we were sometimes driven to acts of marauding, such as kidnapping pigs and cooking them in the groves, at which their proprietors were by no means pleased. In this state of affairs, we determined to march off to the consul in a body, and as he had brought us to these straits, demand an adequate maintenance. On the point of starting, Captain Bob's men raised the most outrageous cries and tried to prevent us. Though hitherto we had strolled about wherever we pleased, this grand conjunction of our whole force upon one particular expedition seemed to alarm them. But we assured them that we were not going to assault the village and so, after a good deal of gibberish, they permitted us to leave. We went straight to the Pritchard residence, where the consul dwelt. This house, to which I have before referred, is quite commodious. It has a wide veranda, glazed windows, and other appurtenances of a civilized mansion. Upon the lawn in front are palm trees standing erect here and there, like sentinels. The consular office, a small building by itself, is enclosed by the same picket which fences in the lawn. We found the office closed, but in the veranda of the dwelling-house was a lady performing a tonsorial operation on the head of a prim-looking elderly European in a low white cravat, the most domestic little scene I had witnessed since leaving home. Bent upon an interview with Wilson, the sailors now deputed the doctor to step forward as a polite inquirer after his health. The pair stared very hard as he advanced, but no ways disconcerted, he saluted them gravely and inquired for the consul. Upon being informed that he had gone down to the beach, we proceeded in that direction, and soon met a native who told us that, apprised of our vicinity, Wilson was keeping out of the way. We resolved to meet him, and passing through the village, he suddenly came walking towards us, having apparently made up his mind that any attempt to elude us would be useless. "'What do you want of me, you rascals?' he cried, a greeting which provoked a retort in no measured terms. At this juncture, the natives began to crowd round, and several foreigners strolled along. Caught in the very act of speaking to such disreputable acquaintances, Wilson now fidgeted and moved rapidly towards his office, the men following." Turning upon them incensed, he bade them be off. He would have nothing more to say to us. And then, hurriedly addressing Captain Bob in Tahitian, he hastened on and never stopped till the postern of Pritchard's wicket was closed behind him. Our good old keeper was now highly excited, bustling about in his huge petticoats and conjuring us to return to the Calabooza. After a little debate, we acquiesced. This interview was decisive. Sensible that none of the charges brought against us would stand, 
yet unwilling formally to withdraw them, the consul now wished to get rid of us altogether, but without being suspected of encouraging our escape. Thus only could we account for his conduct. Some of the party, however, with a devotion to principle truly heroic, swore they would never leave him, happen what might. For my own part, I began to long for a change, and as there seemed to be no getting away in a ship, I resolved to hit upon some other expedient. But first I cast about for a comrade, and of course the long doctor was chosen. We at once laid our heads together, and for the present resolved to disclose nothing to the rest. A few days previous I had fallen in with a couple of Yankee lads, twins, who, originally deserting their ship at Fanning's Island, an uninhabited spot but exceedingly prolific in fruit of all kinds, had, after a long residence there, roved about among the society group. They were last from Imeo, the island immediately adjoining, where they had been in the employ of two foreigners who had recently started a plantation there. These persons, they said, had charged them to send over from Papati, if they could, two white men for field laborers. Now, all but the prospect of digging and delving suited us exactly. But the opportunity for leaving the island was not to be slighted, and so we held ourselves in readiness to return with the planters, who, in a day or two, were expected to visit Papati in their boat. At the interview which ensued, we were introduced to them as Peter and Paul, and they agreed to give Peter and Paul fifteen silver dollars a month, promising something more, should we remain with them permanently. What they wanted was men who would stay. To elude the natives, many of whom not exactly understanding our relations with the consul, might arrest us were they to see us departing, the coming midnight was appointed for that purpose. When the hour drew nigh, we disclosed our intention to the rest. Some upbraided us for deserting them. Others applauded and said that on the first opportunity they would follow our example. At last we bade them farewell. And now there would be a serene sadness in thinking over the scene, since we never saw them again, had not all been dashed by McGee's picking the doctor's pocket of a jackknife in the very act of embracing him. We stole down to the beach, where, under the shadow of a grove, the boat was waiting. After some delay, we shipped the oars, and pulling outside of the reef, set the sail, and with a fair wind, glided away for Imeo. It was a pleasant trip. The moon was up, the air warm, the waves musical, and all above was the tropical night, one purple vault hung round with soft, trembling stars. The channel is some five leagues wide. On one hand, you have the three great peaks of Tahiti lording it over the ranges of mountains and valleys, and on the other, the equally romantic elevations of Imeo, high above which a lone peak, called by our companions the Marling Spike, shot up its verdant spire. The planters were quite sociable. They had been seafaring men, and this, of course, was a bond between us. To strengthen it, a flask of wine was produced, one of several which had been procured in person from the French Admiral's steward, for whom the planters, when on a former visit to Papati, had done a good turn by introducing the amorous Frenchman to the ladies ashore. Besides this, they had a calabash filled with wild boar's meat, baked yams, breadfruit, 
and Tombe's potatoes. Pipes and tobacco also were produced, and while regaling ourselves, plenty of stories were told about the neighboring islands. At last we heard the roar of the Imeo Reef, and gliding through a break, floated over the expanse within, which was smooth as a young girl's brow, and beached the boat. Chapter 52 The Valley of Martair We went up through groves to an open space, where we heard voices, and a light was seen glimmering from out a bamboo dwelling. It was the planter's retreat, and in their absence, several girls were keeping house, assisted by an old native, who, wrapped up in tappa, lay in the corner smoking. A hasty meal was prepared, and after it we essayed a nap, but alas, a plague, little anticipated, prevented. Unknown in Tahiti, the mosquitoes here fairly eddied around us, but more of them anon. We were up betimes, and strolled out to view the country. We were in the valley of Martair, shut in on both sides by lofty hills. Here and there were steep cliffs, gay with flowering shrubs, or hung with pendulous vines, swinging blossoms in the air. Of considerable width at the sea, the vale contracts as it runs inland, terminating, at the distance of several miles, in a range of the most grotesque elevations, which seem embattled with turrets and towers, grown over with verdure, and waving with trees. The valley itself is a wilderness of woodland, with links of streams flashing through, and narrow pathways fairly tunneled through masses of foliage. All alone in this wild place was the abode of the planters, the only one back from the beach, their sole neighbors, the few fishermen and their families, dwelling in a small grove of coconut trees whose roots were washed by the sea. The cleared tract which they occupied comprised some thirty acres, level as a prairie, part of which was under cultivation, the whole being fenced in by a stout palisade of trunks and boughs of trees staked firmly in the ground. This was necessary as a defense against the wild cattle and hogs overrunning the island. Thus far, Tombe's potatoes, footnote, perhaps the finest sweet potato in the world, it derives its name from a district of Peru, near Cape Blanco, very favorable to its growth, where also it is extensively cultivated. The root is very large, sometimes as big as a good-sized melon, and footnote, were the principal crop raised, a ready sale for them being obtained among the shipping touching at Papati. There was a small patch of the taro, or Indian turnip also, another of yams, and in one corner, a thrifty growth of the sugar cane just ripening. On the side of the enclosure next the sea was the house, newly built of bamboos in the native style. The furniture consisted of a couple of sea chests, an old box, a few cooking utensils, and agricultural tools, together with three fowling pieces hanging from a rafter, and two enormous hammocks swinging in opposite corners, and composed of dried bullock's hides, stretched out with poles. The whole plantation was shut in by a dense forest, and, close by the house, a dwarfed aoa, or species of banyan tree, had purposely been left twisting over the palisade in the most grotesque manner, and thus made a pleasant shade. The branches of this curious tree afforded low perches, 
upon which the natives frequently squatted, after the fashion of their race, and smoked and gossiped by the hour. We had a good breakfast of fish, speared by the natives before sunrise on the reef, pudding of Indian turnip, fried bananas, and roasted breadfruit. During the repast, our new friends were quite sociable and communicative. It seems that, like nearly all uneducated foreigners residing in Polynesia, they had, some time previous, deserted from a ship, and, having heard a good deal about the money to be made by raising supplies for whaling vessels, they determined upon embarking in the business. Strolling about with this intention, they at last came to Martair, and, thinking the soil would suit, set themselves to work. They began by finding out the owner of the particular spot coveted, and then making a tayo of him. He turned out to be Tonoi, the chief of the fishermen, who one day, when exhilarated with brandy, tore his meagre tapa from his loins, and gave me to know that he was allied by blood with Pomeree himself, and that his mother came from the illustrious race of pontiffs, who in old times swayed their bamboo crozier over all the pagans of Imeo a regal and right reverend lineage. But at the time I speak of, the dusky noble was in decayed circumstances, and therefore by no means unwilling to alienate a few useless acres. As an equivalent, he received from the strangers two or three rheumatic old muskets, several red woolen shirts, and a promise to be provided for in his old age. He was always to find a home with the planters." Desirous of living in the cosy footing of a father-in-law, he frankly offered his two daughters for wives, but as such they were politely declined, the adventurers, though not averse to courting, being unwilling to entangle themselves in a matrimonial alliance, however splendid in point of family. Tonoi's men, the fishermen of the grove, were a sad set. Secluded in a great measure from the ministrations of the missionaries, they gave themselves up to all manner of lazy wickedness. Strolling among the trees of a morning, you came upon them napping on the shady side of a canoe hauled up among the bushes, lying under a tree smoking, or more frequently still, gambling with pebbles. Though, a little tobacco excepted, what they gambled for at their outlandish games, it would be hard to tell. Other idle diversions they had also, in which they seemed to take great delight. As for fishing, it employed but a small part of their time. Upon the whole, they were a merry, indigent, godless race. Tonoi, the old sinner, leaning against the fallen trunk of a coconut tree, invariably squandered his mornings at pebbles, a grey-headed rook of a native regularly plucking him of every other stick of tobacco obtained from his friends, the planters. Toward afternoon, he strolled back to their abode, where he tarried till the next morning, smoking and snoozing, and at times, prating about the hapless fortunes of the house of Tonoi. But, like any other easy-going old dotard, he seemed for the most part perfectly content with cheerful board and lodging. On the whole, the valley of Martair was the quietest place imaginable. Could the mosquitoes be induced to emigrate, one might spend the month of August there quite pleasantly. But this was not the case with the luckless Longhost and myself, as will presently be seen. End of chapters 51 and 52 Recording by Tricia G.